Greetings, comrades, and welcome to another episode of Chatter in the Skull. And today, we have a, a jam-packed episode, one that I did not think that was going to be jam-packed. I thought we were going to have a quiet episode, quiet news cycle. Unfortunately, that is not what has happened at all. We do have quite the bit of political drama unfolding currently as I'm recording this in the United States. Who knows if when you see this tomorrow, everything will be unfolded. I've waited for as long as I can to record this episode, but obviously we're going to be talking about what is happening with Kevin McCarthy and his current attempt to become the leader of the house. Apologies in advance. I'm a little bit nasally, a little bit stuffed up today, but it is that time of year and you know, it is unfortunately part of the territory that comes with having a little three-year-old. They are kind of germ factories. I have once again come down with a cold, which happens, honestly, it happens like once a month. Anyway, enough about, enough about that. I just want to apologize for, uh, for sounding a little sick. So if you're wondering why I'm suddenly on the other side, it's because in between shots, I was playing around with the lighting in the studio here, trying to get as best lighting as I could. And finally, I found something that was okay. I still need to do some work, but it involved me flipping everything around. So without further ado, here we go. Flipped around. Looking uh, half decent. In any case, let's move on to what's actually happening here. We are currently live in the middle of the seventh round of votes for House Speaker. And Kevin McCarthy is on track to lose it once again. So in case you have not been following what has been happening in the past couple of days, I will do my best to bring everybody up to speed. I do like to fly through this part. But basically what has happened is that Kevin McCarthy was on track to be elected as Speaker of the House of Representatives in the United States. This is usually a kind of a formality process. In fact, this is the first time in 100 years in which a Speaker has not been able to gain the gavel on the first ballot. The last time this happened was actually exactly 100 years ago in 1923. And now here we are again, history rhyming, where a House Speaker is having a difficult time gaining the majority of his party and gaining a consensus among his party. So what exactly is happening? Essentially, before Congress can start, Congress needs to elect a Speaker of the House. It's a very strong procedural rule, very strong procedural position. It's a good thing for the Republicans to have the House Speaker. It's a political advantage. There's no question about that. And usually the party with the majority is able to settle on a Speaker with relatively few issues. The Democrats had a few issues back in, I believe it was 2021 with the uh, force the vote. I believe that was 2021 because they were trying to elect Nancy Pelosi again as House Speaker. And some of the more progressive Democrats were threatening to withhold their vote unless you open up more aid for Medicare. And eventually what ended up happening is the progressives basically acquiesced to the demands of the establishment. Nancy Pelosi was elected speaker. She's speaker for two years. And now uh, here we are today where something similar is happening on the Republican end. But what isn't happening for the Republicans is that the Republicans who are against the new Speaker of the House, which is a man named Kevin McCarthy, they are acquiescing to the establishment, essentially. They are saying, we're going to vote against you. We don't like you. We don't want you as a Speaker. And uh, that's really their only demands, is essentially they, just, they don't like Kevin McCarthy. They don't want him as a Speaker. In any case, the people who are rebelling against Kevin McCarthy 
are considered to be more on the far right of the party, considered to represent the more populist right wing of the party. And they don't like Kevin McCarthy for a number of reasons, but the main one being is essentially he is not seen as conservative enough, a so-called swamp creature, if you will. And they, in essence, believe that he will do more damage to the party brand and reputation than the Democrats have done because they've already had the Democrats for two years and they don't just want another, you know, corporate Republican, quote unquote, rhino in the job because they're going to do the things that they want to do. However, there is a very big question as to what the real motivation of these Republicans is and why they are going against Kevin McCarthy in this way, because there's no way you can slice it. It looks bad for the party. It looks bad for the Republicans that they can't decide on a leader, that they can't bring everybody together in consensus, because if you can't bring your own party together in some sort of consensus, of course, it doesn't exactly look good at your chances of governing. But not only that, as we mentioned before, this is the first time that this has happened in 100 years. There used to be times when it would take around this number of ballots to elect a speaker, but this is, again, 100 years ago. Back in the Civil War era, you're talking dozens of ballots before a speaker is elected. And right now, in between all of these different ballot votes, there have been back smoke-filled room type of negotiations happening where Kevin McCarthy has been deploying whatever tools he has in his arsenal to try and cajole these Republicans into his camp. And Kevin McCarthy does have a very difficult job. The one thing that Nancy Pelosi had as previous Speaker of the House in comparison to Kevin McCarthy is she had been there for an extremely long time and had a lot of connections in with her caucus. She'd been Speaker of the House for a while. She knew how things worked. And I have tons of complaints about the woman. But the one thing you can't take away from her is she knew how to whip votes and she knew how to control her caucus. Kevin McCarthy, on the other hand, is new to this game. He's not new to the game of you know congressional politics, but in terms of congressional speaker politics, he is very new to this. And usually bringing together Republicans is seen as fairly simple. They're seen as a more homogenous political group of people. Democrats tend to be more raucous. They tend to have much more divergent interests and objectives. Whereas Republicans have a tendency to fall in line, they have a stereotype of falling in line much easier. However, this doesn't seem to be the case. And again, we come back to our question of motivation. Why are they doing this? And there is a key reason, and I've seen a lot of people on both the left and the right, and particularly I think the left is missing this in their commentary more than the right, because it is more of a right-wing indoor type of political ball game. But they are missing, I think, a key component of why these Republicans are doing this, and they are missing a key component of why they will continue to do this. And it is a fundamental difference between the left and right wing of politics, at least in the United States, not so much in other countries. And I do want to give some credit because not all of these people are hard right. Of course, you have Lauren Boebert, hard right, got Matt Gates. Hard right. In fact, Matt Gates voted for Donald Trump as the speaker for this seventh voting round. I didn't even know you could do that. I guess you could stand up and vote for freaking Donald Duck if you wanted to. I'm not sure. But either way, he stood up and voted for Donald Trump, which of course is probably a sort of jab at the fact that I'm recording this on January 5th and you, this one coming out on January 6th, which will be the two year anniversary of that particular event. 
in any case, there are definitely some more complex motivations here. One of them, for example, is Victoria Sparts. And she is actually the, if I'm not mistaken, the only Ukrainian-American Republican representative. So she's Ukrainian-American and has taken issue with some of the statements Kevin McCarthy has made about continuing to support the war in Ukraine. So obviously this has put her kind of at odds with the speaker, but she's not gone far enough to actually vote for somebody else. What she is doing is, is voting present which actually lowers the threshold for a majority. So it is, in fact, theoretically possible if enough Republicans vote for, or excuse me, withhold their vote and vote present, that lowers the threshold for a majority. And essentially what that could mean is that Hakeem Jeffries, who is the Democratic candidate and who the Democrats have voted for in lockstep every single time they're putting forward for a speaker. So it is theoretically possible you could have a Democratic Speaker of the House. It's unlikely. I, I don't think that that's going to happen. But honestly, to be quite frank, I didn't think that Kevin McCarthy was going to have this amount of trouble. There were definitely rumblings that he was going to have some amount of trouble because a lot of Republicans, particularly people like Matt Gates were signaling that they were not going to vote for him virtually under any circumstances, but a full cohort of 20 Republicans is definitely surprising. In any case, back to what the main motivation here is, and what I'm talking about here is something that fundamentally exists on the right that doesn't exist in the same way it does on the left, especially for people who are on the more populist left. They are not part of the establishment left, and they are advance more of a socialist and progressive policies, whereas the establishment left does have plenty of these types of organizations. But I'm actually getting ahead of myself here. I want to actually mention something that I heard a, another political commentator say. This was probably a couple of years ago. Gold Timmy Poole, Tim Poole, once said that America essentially has three parties, that they have the progressive left, the Democrats, and then kind of the, the Republicans, the right, the center-right. But he's wrong. Well, he's kind of right, but he is also wrong in the sense that there is actually a fourth party. There is the hard left, the center left, center right, and the hard right. And essentially that because America is a two-party system, both the wings of the right and left usually end up unifying to basically defeat the other side. And this has mostly been the establishment cohort of both the left and right, the neoliberals, the neoconservatives who have been driving the ship. On the Republican end, though, they had a real breakthrough where the anti-establishment conservatives really were able to deal a blow to the establishment. I think we're seeing now that the Republican establishment isn't dead, right? But it's had like its arm cut off, essentially. It's wounded, but it's not out of the fight. But for the time when the populist right was in the driver's seat, which is, of course, during the Trump presidency, the establishment fell in line. They fell in line with basically what Donald Trump wanted for the most part. And obviously we can see now that they were trying to play the long game, essentially, and trying to wait the guy out and to come back later at a different time. The anti-establishment right, not really wanting to give up this position that they've come into for the first time, pretty much ever, to be honest, they are obviously fighting back and they don't want to lose the kind of status that they've gained 
within the conservative movement. So we are seeing a struggle here of the establishment trying to strike back and take back some of the power from the more anti-establishment far-right conservatives. However, these far-right conservatives have one thing on their side that is extremely powerful that the establishment conservatives have to a lesser extent. And the anti-establishment left has absolutely nothing like this. And it's one of the reasons why it's having so much difficulty gaining traction in American politics. And these are, of course, outside political organizations, which are usually funded by billionaires, but headed by media figures, people like Charlie Kirk, not Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro is definitely more establishment these days. In fact, I would say he's probably the most powerful voice the conservative establishment has right now. So I wouldn't label as anti-establishment, even though he tries to be a little bit sometimes. But something like Turning Point America under Charlie Kirk definitely falls into this type of organization. You have other organizations, something like a Prayer U. You have Coalition for Growth is another one. You have these kind of anti-establishment conservative outlets that exist outside of the actual governmental power structure and have a lot of money and they have a lot of influence within the conservative political movement. They have a lot of money and they have a ton of influence right now with the grassroots, with the base of the party. And they are far more in tune with that, that conservative base and what they want and what they're feeling than the establishment. So this gives them a lot of leverage because they have money coming in from these organizations that do a ton of fundraising and are, as I mentioned, sometimes funded by outside billionaires. And of course, they have much better inroads with that conservative base, which allows them to rile up a lot of people, get a lot of people to be politically motivated for their cause. So these are two huge assets which allow them to function very effectively outside of the Republican establishment. The one thing that anti-establishment leftist organizations lack in that regard is that back-end funding. There's no billionaire funding the advancement of the working class. There's no coalition for the advancement of working people or anything like that. Yes, we do have a lot better connection with the left-wing base and can rile them up and can get them to come out and vote for candidates. However, without that money, it's hard to get that kind of political influence across the finish line, especially in a very money-driven political system like the United States. So the long and short of it, why are these Republicans rebelling against Kevin McCarthy? Essentially, these outside organizations have told them that Kevin McCarthy, we do not want him as speaker. You need to deny him as, from becoming speaker. Don't worry about your fundraising. We'll take care of your fundraising. Don't worry about your committee appointments. It doesn't matter if we can oust this guy. We can still work out something, potentially with another speaker in the future. And on top of that, and this is definitely speculation, so I will admit it is speculation. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some subtext there, that there's a little bit of a threat that if you do not do what we want, if you do not stand against Kevin McCarthy in this instance, then we will cut off your funding and we will cut off your support. And then who are you going to turn to? So again, just to stop briefly here, we have officially ended the eighth round of voting with Kevin McCarthy not able to secure the gavel yet. And it looks like we're going to go in 
excuse me, we finished this. Did I say the eighth round? We finished the seventh round, my mistake. Seventh round voting, and now we're moving into the eighth round, and it seems like that things are probably going to stay the same. Honestly, after what it, we're in the third day now, if they haven't cut a deal, Kevin McCarthy hasn't been able to cut a deal after this much time, It's I cannot see him being able to work something out. But who knows? Who knows? But the main thing here is that the longer I think this goes on, the less Kevin McCarthy's chances become of becoming speaker. And there's the final tally for the seventh ballot, exactly the same as the sixth, exactly the same as the fifth, and exactly the same as the fourth. So things have not changed in about four ballots now. But one thing I want to touch on before we move on is that I'm sure a lot of people would say, well, doesn't the left have organizations, you know, like Black Lives Matter or other type of organizations that are out there supporting left-wing candidates? And to an extent, yes, that's true. But there is, again, a fundamental difference between how left-wing political organizations and right-wing political organizations seem to organize themselves. Not only do organizations like BLM fund a lot of establishment candidates anyway, but they operate on a far more decentralized chapter-based system, whereas right-wing organizations tend to be a lot more centralized and usually have some sort of central leader or figurehead or some sort of beacon that the people can rally around. So while, yes, there are multiple chapters of something like a Turning Point USA, it's very clear who the founder and figurehead of that organization is, which is, of course, Charlie Kirk, with something like Black Lives Matter, it's very different. There are many different chapters, each with their own heads, each with their own goals, each with their own funding, and each with their own resources. And they don't always necessarily work together. And there isn't always necessarily an overarching sort of leader or figure or person driving the movement. And this is because left-wing politics tends to be driven more by ideas and ideology than necessarily people or figure. In any case, the main differences right-wing political organizations tend to have more centralization than left-wing ones and each one of those comes with its own advantages and disadvantages but that's getting off into the weeds now but before i leave this off i want to talk about what i think is going to happen and then we can go into our last segment for today but before i do that what i want to do is see what the betting markets think are going to happen because yes Apparently, people are betting on this, which is hilarious to me, and it shows <laughs> that people will bet on, on anything. They'll bet on anything, and this is something that has been borne out, A, through human history, and B, through multiple forms of media and entertainment throughout our lives. So it always reminds me of that, uh, that scene in the rat race when all like the billionaires are just coming together and betting over really stupid, ridiculous things. Although this isn't as stupid and ridiculous, I do find betting over it to be a little bit ridiculous. That being said, the betting markets are turning against old Kevin McCarthy. When I checked this yesterday before the show, he was at about 50, yeah, it looks like 51 cents. He's down nine cents now. And Steve Scalise, who is, yeah, all these Republicans are not great, to put it mildly, but Steve Scalise is definitely more not great than Kevin McCarthy. But anyway, he's coming up in terms of the prediction markets. He's now at 37 cents, a very solid second place. Donald Trump at five cents in third place and then of course you've got stefanak and jim jordan and then jeffries at the what's that number six 
I'm honestly surprised by that. I think Jeffries obviously is not the favorite to win by any stretch of the imagination, but he has a more, I think he's got a higher shot than 4% of actually getting in this. I think he would be the third choice in my opinion. He should be actually third place. But that being said, if you're feeling lucky, maybe a throw a bet on all Jeffries somehow pulling this out. In any case, I just, I find this, again, it is a very interesting display of human behavior, but it does give us some interesting information in terms of what people think or in terms of who people think is going to win and what people think is actually happening. I just want to go down here. I'll show you the graph. Let's go to the 30-day uh, graph. <laughs> we can see that, yeah, people have been betting on this. Oops. There we go. For a little while. Let me just move myself over here. There we go. But yeah, so people have been betting on this for a little while. But I just love like the utter total collapse that you can see. That when he is, yeah, it looks like he's going to get it. No problem, no problem, no problem. Boom. Just total implosion here. And uh, oh, yeah. He, uh, day two, he went up actually. But day three now, he's at his lowest odds ever at 42. Day one, he crumbled down to 45 cents, went back up to 51 cents day two. And now on day three, he's crumbling down to 42 cents. So it's not looking good for old Kevin McCarthy. So what do I actually think is going to happen? No, I don't think Jeffries is going to win. That would be hilarious, though. That would be so spectacularly funny that I almost do want to put, like, I, I am not a betting man by any stretch of the imagination. Part of me wants to put 10 bucks on Hakeem Jeffries to just get case on some outside chance he actually wins, end up making a you know, small amount of money there. But as I said, I don't think he's going to win. Honestly, day one, I definitely thought that Kevin McCarthy was going to be able to hash out some sort of backroom deal, be able to work things out with the caucus, be able to give a couple of concessions or what have you and be able to work things out. But no, the anti-McCarthyite wing of the Republican Party is evidently extremely strong, extremely vocal, and they do not want to go anywhere, it looks like. And as we talked about before, I think it is because they have very explicit goals set by the people who fund them and, of course, people in the grassroots who don't like Kevin McCarthy either and don't want to see him as speaker to advance this agenda, but obviously I do think it's about the money and securing the funding from these kind of organizations which support the populist conservative agenda. And again, that is something I think a lot of, especially left-wing commentators, are really missing when they're talking about this. They talk about things like, oh, there's ego, it's about you know trying to get their notoriety up, it's trying to get recognized, trying to get more Twitter, Twitter followers or what have you. Of course, that does play a part in their calculation and probably anybody's political calculation. However, it's not the main driving factor, at least in my opinion. Here we are, eighth round beginning in any case. So yeah, what do I think is going to happen? Yeah, because these Republicans are so steadfast and I think are definitely having outside orders not to flip their vote under any circumstances, I don't think Kevin McCarthy is going to be a speaker. I think at this point, if he had something that he could offer the rebels, he would have given it to them. If they had some sort of deal, they could have, if they could find a deal, they would have found it already. However, this is not the case. We are again now in the eighth speaker vote tally. We are close to beating the 100-year-old record. <laughs> we got to have two more tallies and then we'll be there. 
But I just don't know how much more, uh, this must be so embarrassing for Kevin McCarthy, and I don't know how much more humiliation this man can stand. I would not be surprised if he does at some point just say drops out. And who knows if, if Steve Scalise will be the speaker. My big thing here is what about the 200 Republicans or the 200 or so Republicans that did vote for McCarthy and do want him? How are they going to treat this going forward? And if they do end up settling on a speaker that's not McCarthy, how will those Republicans treat that speaker? And of course, the people who forced their hand in getting a speaker that wasn't the one they wanted in the first place. And there's another political calculus that I forgot to mention here. And this is something a lot of these outside organizations do believe and want to see their Congress people do. However, it's completely politically implausible, which is essentially as they want to have a Speaker of the House that would shut down funding under, you know, any circumstances. Because one of the powers that Congress has is, how there's your first vote for Donald's, is the powers of the purse string. So there's this kind of conservative idea that if we get a really real hawkish fiscal conservative into the speaker's seat, then we can basically shut down the purse strings of the government. This is, of course, probably never going to happen. However, it does remain a pet favorite project, particularly by a lot of these kind of outside billionaires, sort of libertarian and cap billionaires that are funding some of these people. So I forgot to mention that's another reason why these guys don't McCarthy is they feel like he is not fiscally conservative enough on top of being not conservative enough in general. And this is one of the things we are seeing happen as the right, the far right is fracturing off from the party and there's fracturing happening within the right wing, which is the beginning of purity spirals, essentially, which is purity test to decide who gets to be in our fireware club and who doesn't, who is the real conservative, who is not. Oh, that's interesting. Hearn. For Hearn, that is something. Must have been Bobers. Okay. Hearn is now picking up votes. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, a lot of these guys are moving from Donald's to Hearn. I'm not familiar with this guy. Kevin Hearn. Oklahoma. In any case, it's interesting to see that all of a sudden this guy's coming out of nowhere. Literally, while I'm recording the show, we have the people deciding to vote for Kevin Hearn for some unknown reason on the eighth ballot. Anyway, who knows what's happening? Who knows what's going to happen? But I do feel that things are not looking good for Kevin McCarthy right now by any stretch of the imagination. So for our next segment, I want to go come back to our conversation about Latinos moving rightward and what that means for American politics, bring up some numbers and figures, and talk a little bit about how voting blocks are formed and how they become impactful in the United States. So we've got a really interesting breakdown here from the Wall Street Journal. This is for the 2022 midterms. So let's look at some of the demographic breakdowns for the 2022 midterm election. And what we will see is that the real swing rightward for Latinos actually happened in this election, not in 2018 or 2022. But as you can see, when it comes to well, African-Americans and Hispanic people, still very solidly Democratic. However, in 2022, they moved more Republican by pretty sizable margins. Hispanics moved more Republican by 10 points. 
and black people moved by a whopping geez what is that 25 points yeah so 25 points and where this movement seems to be coming from particularly is from young men between the ages of 18 and 44 moving in a more rightward direction and this is definitely something that concerns me and should concern left-leaning people moving into the future and they also flipped suburban women by two seven points republic and that's a full 12 point shift but the main thing is i want to go back to young men and it should concern left-leaning people and like i said it concerns me and the main reason is because we are obviously failing to connect with young men not just white young men but it seems like we are failing to connect with young men of now every race and this should definitely start to concern us we do not want to see young men moving in a rightward direction because that would not be a very good thing for anybody there's a number of reasons for this the, there the two main reasons are a leftist messaging towards young men has been either terrible or in some cases outright hostile and the opposite has happened on the right side of the aisle messaging political messaging on the conservative side to young men has been a lot more positive uplifting and obviously connecting with them and again it's another reason why i wanted to do this show because i have seen men in my age bracket move rightward in my lifetime and it's something i want to counteract and i think again the left has done a very terrible job in counteracting this kind of propaganda and this kind of messaging so there's no question there is a rightward shift here particularly among young men i don't think it's irreversible by any stretch of the imagination but i do think that there are some other factors at play particularly for the latino community that is pushing them further to the right one thing that we talked about or well i didn't really talk about it as much but a lot of you guys talked about it is that the people from latino countries tend to be more socially conservative which is very true and one of the things is those kind of concerns you know if you're having trouble putting food on your plate if you're having trouble getting by you really don't give a crap about those kind of socially conservative concerns if you are having trouble feeding your kids you don't give two shits of whether or not gay people can get married or not however once you start to gain a little bit of stability a little bit of wealth things are starting to go better for you and you're no longer concerned about those kind of base level things you start to move towards your other political concerns, which might be, in this case, more socially conservative concerns. So I think there is that happening where people who have more socially conservative concerns are have been here long enough to the point where their wealth is increasing, and now those concerns are coming to the forefront for them. But what's interesting is that this shift does coincide with a particular timing that I want to talk about right here, which is how do you actually get to vote in the United States if you were a migrant coming from another country? How long does that process take and what does it look like? And once you actually get the ability to vote, then how could you potentially change the system and affect the outcome of elections? And there's a couple of things that need to happen for that to become a reality. So first off, how long would it take for you to become a U.S. citizen from the moment you arrive as a migrant from, you know, say Guatemala or actually, you know what, we'll say Venezuela, actually, because this is what we have been talking about, anti-socialist sentiment coming from countries like Venezuela, coming from Nicaragua. 
So let's say we have a group of Venezuelans who have fled Venezuela after 2018, which was that very, very contentious election in Venezuela, where Maduro squeaked it out by the skin of his teeth. And there are a lot of questions about the legitimacy of that election. Obviously, it was a very politically tumultuous time in Venezuela, and it resulted in a lot of people leaving the country. The economy was obviously the worst it's ever been, and things were not going well, to say the least. All right, so let's say we have, again, a group of 10,000 Venezuelans here. And I can draw, we have 10,000. And these people have fled from Venezuela to the USA in 2018. They apply for green cards the moment that they get into the United States. This is actually something you have to do within the first year to stay within the United States for an extended period of time. So they all apply within, say, the first month of getting into the United States. After that, once you get a green card and it's approved, you can live and work in the United States. But remember, you can't vote. You don't have the ability to vote in elections until you actually gain your full citizenship. So while these people, yes, they get to America, they're working, they're living, they're doing their thing, they're not actually voting yet, and they're not actually members of the political system, and they're not contributing to the outcome of elections. And so let's say all our Venezuelans, they really like each other, they all want to stay together, they all want to stay in contact. So they all decide that they're going to move here to this little county. This is fake county, USA. And all of our 10,000 Venezuelans have decided, you know what? We all want to live together in fake county, USA. So maybe we all live, we'll live in the same town or whatever, but we're all going to stay together. We're all going to be in contact. We're going to stay a close-knit community or what have you. So they move to Fake County, USA. They stay there. They get their green cards. They start working. They start building lives for themselves. And then they decide, you know what? We all want to be politically active. We want to be politically engaged. We want to get our citizenships. We want to be voting in the next election. So how do we get the vote, essentially? What do we need to do? Well, once you actually get your green card, you then need to wait five years before you can apply for citizenship. And then once you apply for citizenship, you need to wait a further 18 months before your passport actually arrives. So let's say the whole process to get citizenship, fastest it, it can go is six years. Maybe if you're really lucky, you're probably looking more like seven or eight years. But just remind yourselves that usually it takes longer before people actually get citizenship in the United States and actually are able to vote. One of the funny and interesting things that is different between the United States and Canada is that in Canada, it's actually a lot harder to get our equivalent of a green card. It's called a PR card, a permanent residency card. However, to get Canadian citizenship is much easier once you get your PR card. In the American system, it's much different. It's pretty easy to get your green card. However, to actually vote and get citizenship, it's a lot more hoops you have to jump through. Okay, so... Anyway, we have these people ready to vote. They're able to vote. It's 2024. They have citizenship and they want to vote. And these people, because they fled from Venezuela, they obviously lean heavily right. Let's say that they lean. No group is ever homogenous or anything, but they lean heavily percent right. So it's 75, 25, 
Republican leaning cohort of voters. So obviously very strong Republican. Most of them are influenced by what happened in the home country. They're weary of left-wing parties. But again, you guys have to remember the Democrats are not socialists. They're not a socialistic party by any stretch of the imagination. They are not the same as the socialists in Venezuela. So they are two very different parties with very different political prospects and very different political policies. So now that these people are able to vote, are they actually going to impact an election? Are they actually going to change the outcome of the election in a fake county USA? And because all of these Venezuelans have concentrated in a certain area, yes, they will be able or much more likely to change the outcome of an election. So let's just say we're going to keep everything. Obviously, these numbers are a bit preposterous, but we will just keep everything nice and simple just to keep everybody on the same board. So let's say that fake county USA has 100,000 registered voters. So 100,000 registered voters in fake county USA. It's lean Democratic, but not solidly Democratic. So we have, again, to keep things nice and easy, 100,000 registered voters in fake county USA. And in the last election, the Democratic candidate won by 4,000 votes. So say 52,000 D and 48,000 R. Yeah, I know my writing is atrocious. Hopefully you guys can read that. You know, it, it leans Democratic. However, now that our Venezuelans have the possibility to vote, and we can see that they favor Republicans by a three to three to four margin, they are going to be able to make an impact now in 2024. So in 2024, so we'll just say this is 2022, just the midterms. Here is 2024. So now with these registered voters coming online, I don't like that color. So now with 2024 on the way, they will have 110,000 voters. And if everybody votes the same with these new Venezuelan voters in the mix, the Republicans will now get considerably more votes. So the Democrats will get an additional 2,500 votes and the Republicans will get an additional 7,500 votes. So now the Democrats, they are able to increase their vote total. So they are now get 54,500 votes. But the thing is, oh crap, I got to move the map again. Drawn too much. In any case, as I was saying, that won't be enough because now with these new Venezuelans voting, the Republicans have enough votes to tilt it in their favor by now 1,000 votes. So because this, this cohort of Venezuelans concentrated in fake county USA, they were concentrated enough for them to be able to vote, their right-leaning concentration actually helped them swing this uh, theoretical district from Democratic to Republican. However, my point here being is even if you have a lot of people moving from and fleeing from these kind of conditions in so-called socialist states, the issue is unless they're concentrating in areas, they won't be able to have the same political influence. Because, for example, 
if let's say that our 10,000 Venezuelans spread out into a bunch of different areas and only 1,000 Venezuelans moved to fake county USA, no longer would the Republicans win that county in our scenario because the concentration isn't high enough to bring their votes up above that threshold of 4,000 votes. So yes, you need to also have a concentrated area of people who are going to vote in a way which is not the same way that other people have been voting. So you need to actually, one, get people to remain in the United States long enough to gain citizenship, and two, have people concentrated enough in an area where their votes will actually be able to sway it from one side to another. And this is what has happened in a place like Florida with the Cuban exile community. Obviously, they've been there for a long period of time since the 1970s or 80s. And on top of that, they're concentrated around the Miami area. So this obviously gives them the power to be a voting block, which can influence the outcome of elections in Florida. Similarly, in a place like Texas and a lot of these other places near the border, a lot of people have moved from Mexico to the United States. It stands to reason that the people nearest the border would be the most established, and these people are probably getting wealthier and wealthier, which again changes their political calculation moving forward as their socially conservative concerns might start to become more and more part of their consciousness as their actual base concerns start to be taken care of. So my point is, unless a lot of these people are moving and concentrating in certain areas, they may not have enough concentration to really alter the voting calculation for a particular county. However, if this is happening, if we are having large concentrations of exiled populations, then yes, they are definitely going to have an impact on wherever they happen to move to. So anyway, my point here is I'm not saying anybody's wrong. What I do think some people were not factoring into account is the time it takes to become a U.S. citizen. It's not like you just flee your country and all of a sudden you're voting in whatever country you've come to. That takes a large amount of time. And in the United States, it's one of the places that takes the most amount of time. And also these people need to be concentrating in a certain area to really have the capability to move elections one way. Well, unfortunately, I don't really have a feel-good story for you guys today. So I just want to end on, we just finished the eighth round of speaker vote, the eighth round for the speaker vote as I was recording this episode. Now that everything is all tallied, everything's said and done, the t <laughs> for the eighth, it remains exactly the same, except for whatever reason, these two clowns decided to vote for Kevin Hearn. I just feel like at this point, they're just playing around with the system. Like, you know, Matt Gates votes Trump, these other two people who vote for this Hearn guy. It's, they're just wasting everybody's time at this point, man. But yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. I guess the feel-good story is Republicans continue to be in shambles, continue to be imploding in front of our eyes. And by the time I come to you next week, who knows if we'll not have a, a speaker or what exactly is going to end up happening. And with that, that brings us to the end of our first Chatter in the Skull episode. Ended up being quite an interesting way to start off 2023. I did not expect to be talking about the speaker vote. I actually had another show planned for today, but instead I had to rearrange it and that things up on the spot a little bit, which is fun. It's always fun, especially to be actually talking about things as they happen or uh, mostly as they are happening, because who knows what will happen tomorrow on the fourth day of the speaker vote, though 
as things stand now, it looks pretty grim that Kevin McCarthy is actually going to be able to get over the threshold. So until that time, this has been DeComrade signing off for now, and you guys take care.